Immersive Audio Podcast. In conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business, to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, James Edward Marks joins host Oliver Cadell in the studio. James is an experimental new media provocateur with over 20 years of hands-on collaboration experience with alternative pop culture entertainment. He is the founder of Sci-Fi Lab and Hackstock Festival, and he is also the senior vice president of Double Me, a Silicon Valley transformative tech startup that's pushing the boundaries of holographic mixed reality. Today, James and Oliver discuss the importance of sound and other senses in immersive experiences and how new technology has changed approaches to composing. Hello, James. Thank you for coming today. Hey, Alba, how's it going? And thanks for getting me along. So I just heard you just got out from Uber coming from the Summer in the City Festival. How was that? Yeah, it's um, well, Summer in the City and then I popped into the Boomtown offices for an experience that we can talk about a bit later. Uh, but yeah, Summer in the City uh, is something I'm connected to from my past working with Channel Flip. And I was involved at the time with one of the world's first multi-channel networks. So that was working with a new breed of creators, some of them musicians, some of them animators, some of them vloggers, some of them activists. And for me, that was a really exciting time of kind of, I would call it kind of punk media in a way, middle-class punk media, of a new wave, a new generation making stuff for themselves and harnessing new technology like YouTube and cameras and GoPros and just making stuff that was challenging the mainstream. And for me, that was a really exciting time. So I just popped in, see some of the creators I know uh, and have a see kind of how much has changed a bit. And actually it's kind of a lot more corporate and, you know, but still some amazing talent there. Amazing. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and um, how did you get into all of this and what was your transition from traditional media into the advent of VR, AR and mixed reality and the things that you involved today? Yeah, so I think it's David Bowie has a quote that we use and now I'm currently based at Ravensbourne and, and Bowie was a, a student in the early days of Ravensbourne and Bowie always said, I'm kind of a bit mixed up creatively and I think a lot of people are and when I was younger, you know, not really got like a traditional education, but I always knew that I was interested in films and that kind of moving image could change how I felt. And then after that, I was really kind of lucky in a way because I got to work for 10 years pretty much for the British Film Institute, working with traditional film, you know, uh, like 35 mil, 70 mil, we were involved in opening up the IMAX and the IMAX for me was an amazing thing with the Sonics they've got there, but also the 3D they did and the, the scale of it, could, you know, can could, could change you emotionally. So. Uh, I think the BFI gave me 10 years to kind of make a lot of mistakes of understanding what I wanted to do and still not know really what I wanted to do. But knowing that it was the art of film and moving image and music and gigs and trying to combine all that into something. And, you know, maybe it's only just now that I'm starting to put some of that together. 
Fascinating. Um, I've known you for just over a year now, and uh, I've noticed that you've always been involved with loads of things. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I get to this point where I say I'm not going to take anything else on, and then I do, but I, I think what we touched on earlier, I'm becoming a bit of the Roger Corman of immersive arts, and I really quite like that, because Roger Corman, maybe some of the younger generation won't know, he was a pioneer in the, now the 20th century of making what you would call B-movies, but what his philosophy was to make movies with young minds, so like people like Cameron came from it, Lucas, all of these people who changed the film industry came from him making counterculture, multiple movies that were distributed uh, independently, that then went on to inspire movies like Easy Rider. I quite like that, they're always edgy, you know, they're either about psychedelic drugs or bikers or horror, so Edgar Allan Poe, and they, they found like people like Jack Nicholas who wrote The Trip and then went on to do Easy Rider, and then the studio saw this, that there was a niche looking at it, and so that's where I think a lot of this immersive arts is really good, is to look at more of the niche side, and that's also YouTube as well. YouTube was niche, but now it's a massive niche. Looking at it from a more alternative way, and not, you know, so I think Roger Corman said, yeah, the film was the most corrupt art form at an early stage, and you probably can say that now TV and then social media have, have become corrupt very quick, but actually probably VR and stuff has become corrupt even quicker because the only money, a lot of it is just coming from, from brands uh, and not so much from arts or independent funding. That's an interesting point. I definitely would like to come back to that. At what point during your career did you realise that immersive is the best way to connect and engage with the audience? Well, it's going to things like festivals, big fan of stuff like Secret Cinema. I went to an amazing uh, experience last year that was like the history of electronic music, which was about the invention of the theremin and actually t journeying through his life that integrated lots of different experiences. And also, you know, looking at uh, counterculture. So, you know, from smoking dope to taking LSD to, you know, kind of counterculture uh, experiences, we know that these are very powerful. In the past, people went to churches, and now people go to raves and festivals. So I think it's more, it comes from a connection of loads of different elements, and you need all of those elements connected at the right time. And I think there was one moment I remember really clearly when we were working at the BFI, and we were doing, working with bands, and we were actually working with Asian Dub, and we did a gig, and we got a print of Algiers that was being thrown away, and we chopped it up, and we had eight, 16 millimeter projectors that were, you know, the old school 24 frames. And we projected it around the room where an Asian dub played live and it just blew the whole room up. And so it was that thing of seeing the power of a dynamic, powerful visual with the right chemistry of the band and the audience can change the whole experience. Very interesting. I keep noticing that there is this common thread of concept of psychedelia. How did that come about? Yeah, so I've always been interested in psychedelics and actually the experience I made Hack the Plan Planet was inspired after me and David and a few of the kind of collaborators, mostly a lot of the covers I work with are kind of VJs or composers. I've always been interested in the composer side of music because I think a lot of them, unless you're Hans Zimmer, are often not known as well. And so that's kind of how working with Simon Boswell and I was put a band together with him after I left Channel Flip and we did a, a tour and I, I was trying to work out what kind of niche of music it was, because he'd done a lot of horror, he'd done a lot of tech films like Hackers and Burn Cycle, the first one of the first computer game soundtracks. And he'd worked with Jodorowsky on Santa Sangre. And, and I was looking at it and I was saying, wow, this is kind of like psych, science fiction, horror. So I came up with, with our own word, which was called Psych-Fi, which was celebrating kind of psychedelia, science fiction, uh, counterculture. And I wanted it to be 
not like such as a company, but more of a kind of connection of people. Because sometimes within a niche of horror and a niche of science fiction, it's super geeky and these people are into the same thing, but they never actually will always cross over. So it was more like to try and bring psychedelic in the group into it as well. Because if you watch a lot of horror, or even if you watch like a Lego movie or Dumbo, there's a crossover of psychedelic scenes in pretty much lots of stuff you watch all the time. Uh, even ask a kid now, you know, they'll say, oh wow, that was really trippy. You know, then even though they've never taken any drugs, but it's kind of ingrained in culture now. Do you think there are unique links between psychedelia and um, new technology of VR and being in metaverse and experiencing kind of synthetic reality? Yeah, and that's something that is very controversial. So Simon, who I work with, Simon Boswell, he got to work with Timothy Leary. This year is the 50th anniversary of uh, Timothy, you know, saying, you know, drop out, tune in, his famous kind of uh, phrase. But then later on in the 90s, he kind of got into tech and he got a bit into VR and he kind of said jacking. And so he was looking at it as a new way to communicate, but then the kit was, you know, really expensive. It didn't quite work, but the, the you know, in cyberdelics for me, I've always looked that we have to have some responsibility with what we're doing. And I'm not really into using it for big, long experiences. I just want to make kind of short escapism. That's why probably maybe the B movie side comes into it, where you can have an experience, because I think it's so powerful and we have to treat it like a drug in some ways. I think a stat I saw the other day, and Facebook now own Oculus, uh, so we have to be very careful with it. They own all the data as well. You've got billions of people on there. So it could become highly manipulative. So we have to kind of look at it that it could be a drug. And the stat I saw the other day was that something like 59% of people now feel addicted to their internet-connected technology. And that's highly likely that's your smartphone. You know, I try going two days by not looking at that phone. But then I love that you can hack your phone with a cardboard box and put it in and we can take you on a trip. But then we have to kind of weigh that up within... How far do we go with that? I'm very aware that it can be amazing. Some people say, oh, it's not, that's not great. It's not tethered, it's not really high power. But once again, what I've noticed about VR and immersion, it's really hard to prejudge what people feel. And it's totally different to me looking at a screen. And that's why I'm trying to work with a lot more alternative minds, uh, whether that's artists, VJs, and younger people, universities who are just evolving because our DNA is pretty much contained in screens and that's why if you look at the data you know as a 360 sonic creator yourself you know you look at the data and most people only look between 7 and 30 percent of you know the, the, that film and getting them to do any more people are, are lazy and just very much passive and you don't want to go further than looking at a screen in front of them yeah it certainly comes down to several factors you know and one of them is probably at the novelty of the technology and just perhaps a bit of a lack of experience yeah. for a lot of people who simply not aware of the fact that they need to be looking around. I've certainly experienced those situations multiple times where I had to remind new audience to look around. And another thing, which is probably another big reason I certainly believe in, is the current generation of content creators are still very much stuck in the past and in the realms of conventional content production methods and techniques. And it's almost like we need to either spend some time to unlearn what we spend decades learning to be able to create something rather revolutionary and different, or it simply comes down to the fact that we're gonna have to wait for a new generation of people who just see the world differently. And as it always happened, we'll come up with things that we're not even expecting or talking about today. 
that's spot on and that's what I see as well. I think you know, it's really hard changing the DNA of generations. Like you still got like over probably three million people reading the Daily Mail. You know, so the screens are even more ingrained within certain generations. And so that's what I find put on a cardboard or even, you know, like the HoloLens, the mixed reality device onto a younger mind. And they, you know, they're looking down tunnels or exploring, but everybody else is like, when we put it on earlier, wouldn't it? They, they don't realize that this holographic model's placed right in this room and it's part of this experience right now uh, with, with this. But people yeah. just think, oh, it's a bit of content stuck over there. And so they're not, it's about changing your perception. And that's why I do like the analogy once again to psychedelics, especially for mixed reality. Because in the past, you know, 500 years ago, it was the mystics and the scientists who were exploring the kind of origins of holography with Pepper's ghost, you know, the early stages, the holographic mixed reality, the Star Wars moment, I think is going to be a, another big changer. But it's getting people conditioned to using it. And the tech's not here yet as well, but we're starting to see where that can go. And that, like you touched on before, I think we need to go away. I think the thing of story being the most important thing, that's not necessary true in virtual reality because you are the story and you know then things can be a different experience so we've got to think that how is our brain going to absorb this experience and that could be something like you said something radically new within you know the invention of your company and what you're the way you're going that's something we haven't experienced yet which i think is really exciting to go away and you know if yeah. aliens came down now and saw that like for the last 50 years we've been sat all together looking at a little box in the corner they probably thought we'd been brainwashed and something which maybe we have <laughs> uh, yeah that's an interesting thought in the end there um i just want to go back to psychedelia because obviously you've been closely working with visual artists and composers and have been involved with a very wide variety of a project that had elements of psychedelia in them. Where do you place the importance of audio in that? And in your opinion, do you think audio is rather project agnostic and you can just fit anything into anything? Or just like with visuals where you expect a certain visual aesthetic when you associate with psychedelia, audio also has its features and a whole myriad of characteristics that make it feel and sound psychedelic as opposed to just normal audio attached to a psychedelic visual piece of content. There's the film Once Upon a Time in the West, where the beginning scene of that, I think Morricone had recorded the music first and then they shot the scene after. And so with Hack the Planet that we made, it was actually the experience using Unity of going on the trip was actually made around a track called One Brain that Simon did with Timothy Leary. And it actually had the sounds of the universe in it from captured from one of the early kind of astrophysicists who had been recording them, Dr. Farella. And so it was a really crazy thing. It's called One Brain and it's about finding enlightenment. So for that, we you know made the whole experience around the track. But then later on, we also did another scoring and did a remix track that went on it as well. And I always preferred the original track that had all the sounds of the universe and everything on it. But actually, interestingly, Simon always preferred the one that he scored afterwards, even though we'd done it the way that I'd, I'd, I always felt it should be. Because I'd always, like, you know, when we've worked, I've always wanted to involve you from the beginning, I think, sound and the people in the team. Because sometimes composers, when they make something, it could be massively massacred from what they did. It could be that they're just brought in at the end. And for me, the composer should be integral from the beginning of being part of what the experience is because sound is one of the most important things that makes an experience and once again you're dealing with so many different things whether it's budget people's 
perceived values, but also you've got dealing with how traditional composers have made stuff as well, and VR's a totally different game in regards to how you make a score, because you know, probably even my limited knowledge of this stuff is that all I know is that syncing a score is totally different, because if I'm looking around over here, that what traditionally would have been a linear path, I may be taking 10, 15 seconds, so the music's changed, so you need a whole different kind of sonic way of thinking. One of the guys I really admire, who I got to see another Asian Digital Foundation gig um, with THX 1138, was Walter Merck, who originally called himself, so he could get a job in Hollywood, a sound montagist. And I think that's a better name than actually a sound designer. And then he did go on to create, you know, a surround sound system and look at the technology of how we would hear sounds working around us. And so touching on the psychedelics, once again, that's looking at sounds that maybe we don't even hear, binaural, sounds from the edge of the universe, uh, you know, things that we can't feel, and the, but also adding other senses as well, like smell, vibration. So we work quite a lot with Subpack on some of the experiences. I do like that of adding it. Um, we've had, had to work with smell as well. We've created an original scent. Um, and and, and, and like, I think a lot of things we're doing, like the one we're doing for Boomtown right at this moment, we're actually integrated into the narrative of the whole immersive experience of Boomtown. So I won't give too much away, but if you go and watch the trailer that's out there at the moment, if you go on one of the paths, you're going to go and on part of that path have a VR experience, but we're not taken away from the immersion of the festival. It's going to be part of a, an individual journey that certain people will go on. And I really like that idea of, of being a kind of an add-on experience that gives somebody something very personal and, you know, and of course it's lo-fi, we're making it with a bit of money for, from Boomtown and with um, Third Mind Productions and, and the Arts Council. And it's just kind of experimenting with this stuff to see, see what people feel. I can feel a lot of inspiration in you coming from Simon Boswell. Why him? Uh, I think it's we collaborated in the 90s, I think, on a project. Uh, I'd done a festival called Bite the Bullet. It was a spaghetti western festival. And Richard Stanley, who directed the film Hardware, came along. And the soundtrack that Simon had done for Hardware has a bit of kind of spaghetti guitar in it, you know, like the Clint Eastwood. And, I'd, and actually, because I ended up working with Alessandroni, who did the guitar for the, the Good, the Bad and the Ugly, you know, the wow, 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 and the whistling, I got him over to come and whistle. So I was always doing crazy things like that. And so Simon, we ended up putting a band together. I think we had a member of the Waterboys, Blur, and we did this crazy gig with loads of Italians. It was a bit of a kind of crazy party. And it was just one of the, it was in kind of my wilder days. And then from there we didn't speak and I got, I think I was working with YouTube Lee Harcastle who does crazy claymations. Uh, so we did like clay cats for the raid and different things. And we met up and I was helping kind of crowdfund a movie we did called Ashens and the Quest for the Game Child, which was one of the world's first YouTuber feature films. So I asked Simon, would he do the score? Lee was doing animation in it and it was put out as part of YouTube Geek Week and then we just started climbing there. And I think a reason I like a lot of his stuff because it is, yeah, like I said, got psychedelic horror. It's very, like, more underground in regards to it. And even looking at his back catalogue, it was really interesting because one of the films at the time that was looked as a flop was Hackers. And, and I said, Simon, look, I'd, like, we should do something with Hackers because a lot of this tech generation, you know, all these startups you're in, a lot of people like Hackers. And if you look at it, it's kind of subversive in a Hollywood way. Uh, it had an amazing EDM soundtrack. Uh, it's got VR in it. It's got counterculture in it. So that was kind of where we decided to kind of collaborate on doing a crazy idea of um, doing a VR experience 
based on hackers and its 30th anniversary that put elements of like hardware into it with Lee Hardcastle's clay. So I kind of joined all this stuff up in a crazy way for Simon's 30th anniversary. And so I, I just loved the kind of craziness of all. He's worked with Jodorowsky, who did Santa Sangre. And so he'd worked with loads of directors that kind of inspired me as well. So, and, and just also that thing of bringing a composer out that sometimes people don't know his name, but maybe they should because that track he did from Shallow Grave, everybody kind of remembers it as a kind of and dance and some of the stuff he done has influenced dance and other scenes, but people just don't always realize that there are people behind the scenes. And that's why when he formed the band that we did, he called it The And, because it's always The And, you know, at the end with the composer. And so that goes back to the thing, you know, maybe composers and sound montages, engineers, if you want to call yourself, you know, should be involved from the beginning of the experience or whatever project you're doing. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. We discussed that with Henrik Opperman, who was one of our guests the other day. One of the points that came out and we both strongly agreed on is that, especially with you know, such complex productions, being involved for sound department, a composer, or whoever's doing the job to be involved at early stages is beneficial for a number of reasons. And often when that doesn't happen, you kind of end up finding yourself in a sticky situation. You're more or less fixing things rather than being in a creative flow and trying to do your best for the experience. We touched on earlier, like how do you direct people in an immersive environment? And you know, if you're less narrative led, the sonics can drive an experience in new ways. Like visual artists have been doing this for a long time and that's why I was just recently on the selection committee for the Lumen Prize, you know, which is looking at digital artists, you know, and less the, the, more, the more corporate side. And if you look, there have been so many amazing visual artists doing things and messing around with sonics and syncing up breathing and blurring the boundaries between physical and digital through, through light art. But now we can also do that on a personal experience through a mobile phone device, you know, by working with different imagination. Could you please um, explain to us what Double Me is all about and how it uses the Holo Portal technology, which I believe is trademarked? Right, so, yeah, so Double Me was one of the kind of my other quote I often use, which I probably nick from Simon, is kind of life what happens to you when you're busy doing something else. And so I bumped into Albert, he founded Double Me. He's been in the traditional kind of AR business for a while um, and done pretty well. And as you know, the VR world's a bit of a bubble of the same kind of events, the same kind of people, everyone kind of saying, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. And I'd bumped into Albert a couple of times and then he turned up one day with a HoloLens. And I was just, and I tried it and I saw what he was doing. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And, and after leaving Channel Flip and doing a bit of VR, I didn't really know what I wanted to do next. And he kind of said, like, do you want to come and work for Double Me? And so I was like, yeah, to get to work with HoloLens would be amazing. So mixed reality, Alex Kipman, who designed it, he calls it the kind of transcendence of space and time in how we'll deal with technology interfaces. So that's like the easiest way to explain that maybe is, uh, you know, if you've watched Mission Impossible or you've watched Minority Report or you've watched Iron Man and then you've watched Star Wars, if you combine all that together, that is the potentiality of mixed reality which kind of combines virtual with some people would say AR, but you're actually present and you can control the interface by voice control or by moving your hands. So it's using Connect, scanning the room technology with cameras, you can film through it and you can place holographic, not 
proper holograms yet, even though these people say they are, but you know, you can't quite technology to do a proper hologram, uh, but that should be possible, you know, in the next few years. And so holographic volumetric capture is what Double Me is about. And so Holoportal is a way um, that we're trying to make it accessible. And that's why we went and set Holoportal UK, which uh, with, the, you know, Albert's trademark, the, the Holoportal kind of brand, um, to work with students. To, so going back to what we talked about before, looking at a new generation when you're at university, maybe what you're learning is out of date. Maybe you won't go and make a feature film but maybe you'll make a Snapchat series or YouTube. So we're offering the chance for real-time volumetric capture, which can then be plugged into gaming, you know, VR, traditional web AR, because you can get it as an OBJ file. And then the next stage, you know, is taking that with movement, looping that with movement, and being able to put it into, like I said, any of those formats. And then it cuts across, you know, like all of the, the kind of buzzwords that everybody's using, which sometimes seem from, to me clouds what we're doing because in the end it's about what's the experience of the, you know, that you want to make and for me that's why I've kind of focused on mixed reality uh, because you know it touches on AR and VR but the actual experience of mixed reality from all of the demos I've done over the last you know three years of all of the formats of it is that people love mixed reality more than they love virtual reality and that's because you can still see in the room um, I think that they see easier applications for it straight away and that's the thing with VR, a lot of people don't see what that application will be. And so Double Me wanted to be like an accessible technology, that whether it's used for personal kind of capturing a memory. So, you know, in the future, one of Albert's dreams is to do like holo pets, where you captured your dog and that, you know, you'll have that memory forever, so which is, that's Minority Report. Or, you know, memories, or it could become the new art form of Snap, you know, Snapchat and Atai, if you look at those guys who are doing an amazing job, they've got funding from Warner Brothers, they've just done the Spider-Man promotion where you can take a volumetric, a 3D holographic model and place it in through normal AR as if Spider-Man's in the room with you and move it around and then look as if and film it. But when that's like present and we can all film and we can share experiences through these devices that will probably be on our heads in some way, that changes and becomes potentially a new art form as well. We certainly started noticing the trends that VI is mostly to be entertainment based and, uh, and it's looking like AI is uh, more or less heading towards uh, utility applications and, you know, being kind of everyday things and features that we can use to enhance our lives, essentially. I'm wondering, what's your opinion about how the immersive audio tie into this and do you see audio being still quite a significant part of AR technology, just like it's been with VR so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, so just touching on mixed reality, the, the HoloLens, Microsoft has pretty good 3D sound. Like, you know, I think it's, you know, can potentially to be binaural. And so, and they've got very small, you can't even notice that the speakers on it, but the sound... You can barely hear it when someone else is using it, but... When you put it on, you don't realise how precise and clear and loud the sound is. And that's why I think within effective. the effectiveness in the real world of having a holographic piece of content and then the directional sound, that's going to change how we communicate. And so one of the things that we're experimenting and we're going to have to look more at this 360 sound is live holoportation. And so we've done that now. We can do it with four connects. Uh, and it's straight into the HoloLens. Me and you, you know, next time maybe we'll do this. I'll, you just put the HoloLens on and I'll be sat here with you. Um, and then you can film that and you can put it up as a, as a video podcast, as if I'm here. 
you know, and that's doable now. It's a bit grainy, you know, but, you know, in Star Wars was always a bit glitchy as well. Okay, in that yeah. first hologram, those first holograms. So uh, it's good, there's a big shift and, we, you know, we can't, and that, some of the stuff we can't talk about that we're doing at the moment, but, you know, we're looking, uh, working with 5G, which changes everything. Looking at, and also that means we need less kit because everything could be in the cloud as well. So I think one of the things as well is, so what we have to look at is when we can lose technology, but we know it's there and we trust it, you know, and that's the other question we have to sometimes question what we're doing as well. Because, like I said before, with Facebook having all that data and then being able to kind of maybe manipulators, which we like we've seen through PSYOPs, which is, you know, kind of giving you direct messages of things that aren't true, which was done for some of the, the kind of recent elections. So we have to be kind of very careful and AI as well, artificial intelligence. We've had a few experiences of that with a film recently that was entered into Sci-Fi London, which is part of, you know, Hackstock's part of that, which was actually written by uh, artificial intelligence, you know, and the film came third in, in this year's uh, Sci-Fi London Film Festival, 48 Hour Film Challenge, and it's actually, it's got the Hoff in it. Uh, so and, and the they did it did enter the year before and it kind of scared the judges a bit. You know, a film written by AI, we're out of jobs. But does it mean that? I, I, I don't know. Is it better than human? I don't know. I mean, I liked it. It was quite Terry Gilliam. Oh, yeah. Was it? yeah. So yeah, it's worth. Watching. I mean, the first one's called Sunspring. It's online to watch, and that's a, totally written by AI. And the, but then the rest of it's made by humans. Uh, who have taken the and actually the songs were the AI actually wrote a song within the script as well. So yeah, it's a two-in-one AI. That's very interesting. Yeah. Came across the website, a company that created this AI composition engine. Yeah, so I consulted for one of the companies and they, um, for YouTube, um, so they, they're ex-YouTubers and they, I consulted them about three years ago now. Cause I was like, oh, I'm not sure if it'll catch on, but then actually it seems to be doing all right. Uh, yeah. So that so that video that I, don't know if you, that I sent you earlier, that was synced, edited, uh, all through an AI. That's pretty amazing. And the special effects were put on it as well. Everything. All I did was do three video clips, and that was all edited just by me pressing a button. Yeah. And I could check. I could have changed the formats of like if I wanted a bit faster, a bit less. Yeah. Um, or I could have added music, and then there's a, a collection of music you can pick. Yeah. Interesting. It's kind of a bit frightening, isn't it? It's sort of glimpses of future where you see a lot of hands-on creatives becoming obsolete over the time and sort of people who can write a code become more and more important because they're the ones who will determine how AI works and mm. they'll be creating algorithms and structures and scenarios for AI to execute. And this is why we have to look at, you know, even though all these buzzwords are getting hijacked, so I think it's called the fourth wave we're in at the moment and that is immersive tech it's blockchain and it's AI, and none of those things are going to be in isolation. They're all going to be converged. But we have to be really careful because there is so much hype and there's so much bullshit that actually, the you know, pure blockchain is probably all you need because that's the whole point. From what I understand, it's to, to help with transparency so that we can all be connected and if we want to get paid and if we want a legal agreement. But now everybody's wanting to own blockchain or make their own blockchain, which kind of defeats the object from what I understand what blockchain should be. Yeah. and. You know, then we have to look at things like universal income. Uh, you know, and Brian Eno always said, you know, in the future we'll look back and we'll think what well, people used to listen to recorded music. Uh, you know, so in fact, maybe there'll be more chance, you know, so like the early days of film, you had people playing 
pianos on top of the music because they didn't have sound on them. So maybe they'll, you know, I think like a technology like HoloLens could create a new kind of artist that all cross between a DJ and a VJ. It will be a magician who then can have a room that so we'll still have the live experience and it'll be controlling an amazing visuals and, and but he'll also be able to share that globally and you could be in it as well. So I think there's still loads more uh, amazing things, even though, uh, you know, because we do look more on the dystopian side of science fiction rather than maybe we need to look a bit more on a kind of bit of a tinge of utopian, um, but, uh, you know, because most of the science fiction at the moment is, is very dystopian I and mean, that's just to do with the state of the way people are feeling. Huckstock. 2017 was designed to incorporate the immersive arts. Can you describe to us why you chose to do this and how it has affected the immersive world? Yeah, so Hackstock was kind of born from when we did Hack the Planet. It was part of Digital Shortage and I wanted to do an event where, you know, Simon would play live, everyone took the virtual pill with their cardboard and the phone. And, but then I also wanted to make it that we had lots of other experiences as well, because I'm very interested in like what we touched on earlier, like using technology without having to have drugs. But if you want to have drugs and technology, you can do both. Um, so I want to like, offer the opportunity for people that don't want to do drugs or, you know, they can still experience things. Um, so we kind of messed around with different kinds of technology. And then Louis from Sci-Fi London, I said, let's do something again the year before. And then this year we did it. And one of the features of Hackstock is uh, um, Mike is the people speak called Talkioki because I'm fed up of going to so many events uh, where it's just people sit down, you hear somebody talk on stage and they do PowerPoint and everyone's bored and they just leave, you know. And, and so I wanted to do something and also a lot of the kind of events I've been going to in VR is really boring, uh, you know, and the same people and very corporate. And so Hackstock was this thing of like to be really open and we'd celebrate anything immersion, even surrealist. So, you know, we had grandma surrealist burlesque, you know, we had wild, you know, brain hacking dream workshops, different kinds of VR, 3D printing, and to be really open to it and then bring lots of different alternative minds together and have a debate, but not control the debate either and question what we're doing. And the whole thing was just trying to connect different kind of people together. So the feedback from each year has always been good. It's not a thing that we're trying to make money out of. It's always been done, hopefully done, just to kind of connect people and experience things. And I did remember after the last two days of the last one, because we don't have alcohol, I'm a big believer, a bit, a bit like Timothy Leary, that if we're doing all this immersive stuff, there is no alcohol, because I find that it affects the VR experiences and people behave like dicks in some ways with it. And, and so actually, we used the, the things we curated were all experiences that could make you feel something anyway. And after two days of it, it did feel like you'd been in a rave for two days. <laughs> but we hadn't taken anything except some matcha green tea, I think. I suppose if you compare it with uh, some kind of scientific experiment, if you were to determine the effectiveness of a drug or effectiveness of whatever concept or entity you're testing, you would like to measure it against the clean slate as opposed to engaging with some, you know, illegal substances or alcohol, whatnot. And then you could, I suppose, interpret that feedback as um, more or less accurate information. And that's it. The experiences we were creating were like Blortasia, which was already, you know, it's up for a Lumen Prize this year, which is created by an amazing artist. He actually won an Academy Award for the Fight Club sequence. I remember we actually remember we got him in as a robot. 
uh, at the event and he was talking from LA. And so, yeah. Uh, You've my, got that device at your home now, right? Uh, the telepresence robot, yeah. So, yeah, so he's stalking me. We've called it, it's actually been called Doug after Douglas Adams because we just did Breaking Convention, the psychedelic conference with VR and AR and MR. But yeah, so the thing as well, it was like curating experience so that actually had some meaning. So I think we had like Fantasynth, we had Death is Only the Beginning, uh, we had uh, AR, kind of Timothy Leary experience, we've just done through phones, and then Blortasia. It was very VR, which is you go on safari and get to see animals on PlayStation. So we didn't go for a game, we went for an experience. So the whole thing was to kind of look at the different things and maybe that journey of what journey you went and you did each thing. But I've tried that experience, it looked fantastic. Yeah, it creates an, an experience and so you don't need alcohol. And also people become more opinionated when they've had alcohol. And that takes away from maybe the enjoyment that they could have had, just from my experience. I think everyone should enjoy themselves in whatever way, but I think if you're showing that this is a new art form and we're trying to connect people in new ways, we should try and experience it as, as much as we can as ourselves. Especially for the first time, I think you want to give a bit of a justice and just try a range of experiences, you know, when your mind is clear and just, just to see what is your reaction to it naturally, you know. It seems like events like this tend to bring immersive to a wider demographic. Do you think events like this will help their mass adoption? And if you do, why? It's a, when we did Hackstock as well, what I went, because it was always the same people, or you had to pay to go an event. I think we were pretty much like the first one that we kind of were just open to the public and it was free and anybody could just wander in. And also we took the science fiction kind of angle as well, of like, why would you bring people? And we also opened it up for kids to come in, but to do workshops about immersive stuff, but not, I think one of the things the industry hasn't been very honest with, and I've been to a few of the, the BAFTA meets and it's already been divided into like a technology and an art. And I would just focus rather it would just be an art form rather than a platform and an art form. That's something that needs to be look, looked at more, you know, where that goes. Do you see immersive audio playing a crucial role in success and rapid adoption right. of AR and VR tech in the future? I think it, it, it has to be, you know, but you've always got that question of, because a lot of my friends are audiophiles and, you, you know, the people who love vinyl, and, but we know that MP4 and the lower five of people streaming stuff is there. So I think we have to understand more. I think if there was an understanding more for how scientifically it makes people feel, within experiences, then that adds more value and that needs to kind of be looked into with ex within how experiences feel more powerful. That's why I go went to see Dunkirk at IMAX because I know behind that massive screen, there's a, a subwoofer that's as big as a mini. Uh, you know, and, so, so, and also, once again, it goes down to personal experience of what people are looking for in things, isn't it? And so I think it's how do we package that up for people to understand what they're getting. So there's a company that we had at Hackstock, I don't know if you met them, who are working on a pair of headphones that can kind of understand how you're feeling to do with emotions. And, you know, and so I think probably there needs to be a bit more thought into how sounds and technology give us an understanding of ourselves. And maybe we can, one of the things I was suggesting with them is that maybe we look at, you know, creating that feeling that you're feeling and you can share that feeling. You know, so that, and that's been picked up from your brain and then that's a way of them promoting the experience because people know, wow, that person's feeling something really great from that experience. Uh, and so as it comes a way of marketing as well. So there's lots of new ways that this may go and the way we'll share experiences and people will still want to do shared experiences as well. So that's looking at 
uh, like we were messing around with just yesterday with ambient mixed reality and ambisonics for an experience because even though it's got great little speakers in the HoloLens, to do this really is good to have amazing, powerful sound around you and that people can share it. And that's why I do love domes as well. You know, Having a dome experience, um, I think Microdose VR are doing that, taking it around a lot of the festivals where you can then look up and have a shared. We're going to be doing some experiments with domes with some really cool dudes I've met and they want to make people push it to the limit, see if they can make people feel sick. Because uh, that's a big question like, as well within VR that, oh, it makes people feel sick, but people go on roller coasters. You know, we don't want to make people feel badly ill sick, cause, you know, but there, there was a point of how far do you push the tech of what we're doing at the moment in this niche area it does in, and, and involves good sound as well. So yeah, so it's a really, once again, it's like, I've never seen a more open playground for us to kind of tinker around with stuff. Which project you were involved in that you're most proud of? And could you tell me why? I'd have to say, I, th I think it still is doing the Hack the Planet because it was such a crazy idea. Even Simon didn't really get it straight away, you know, that people were going to put a cardboard box on their heads while he was going to play live. And also, you've got to remember, he's the guy who's got the band called The Anne because he's always normally not seen because he's done the composer and getting everybody to believe in it, delivering it. And it was, of course, there was lots of great people involved in making that happen. You know, it was just myself, it was you know, like We Are Formation, also uh, FCML, and some people who kind of believed in it because it was a really crazy idea. But the thing is, I always looked at it as a social experience. I always looked at it because it was based on hackers that actually were, you know, were hacking the technology. And I still love that Google put that out there and anybody can go and make it and turn their phone into something and create an experience. And some people, and that's why I don't agree with some of the people in, in, in the BAFTA in regards to they say cardboard is just a terrible experience, but that's not true because I've seen lots of people have amazing times on it. And, you know, and it went on to get honoured for a Webby and it got Lovey shortlisted. We broke the world record for most amount of people doing a VR trip live. And then the biggest kind of honours as well was um, uh, uh, Roger Watts, or sorry, Robert Watts, who came along, who produced Star Wars, and Roger Rabbit, and Indiana Jones, you know, lots of my girlfriend, and he was 77, and he said, James, I've seen what you're doing, can I have a go and out the planet? And so with Nights of Soho, he did two trips, and he, he said, wow, that was a trip. And for me, that was a great moment, somebody who had inspired me, and I'd just given an experience that he said, you know, blown his mind, and it was a cardboard box in a mobile phone with an, an experience that we'd created. Uh, and so for me, and that's what I love about the power of whether it is an old silent film reshown with somebody doing a live score, where we're all sat together watching it, or it's a, you know, an immersive experience, Do, you know, is that art can, can change people's lives and what they feel. And it's brought together a lot of um, cool people that, that now we're collaborating on more and more cyberdelic psych-fi psych projects, because you connect with the people that get it. Um, and so is it, and that's what I've always wanted to do, is do something that would just connect kind of like-minded people, but then be open to bringing other people who are curious to kind of maybe open their minds a bit more in, in kind of challenging times. If you had one piece of advice for people who are interested in pushing the boundaries um, or things we talked about today, VR, AR, mixed reality, what would it be? Just go and do it and just find somebody that, know, that, that you know, that knows a little bit of 
what to do and then they'll find the other people and then it will happen. This reminds me of uh, um, advice how to learn how to swim. Yeah. Just go for Just it. Go, well, it was the YouTube thing as well, you know, like even George Lucas, uh, I think, said, oh no, Coppola, you know, and Coppola, there's a video, it's on YouTube, you can go and watch it. And, you know, and he predicted that the future would be, you know, some a, a girl in the bedroom using their dad's video camera. But it's different. It's probably now a mobile phone. Um, but he, I think he said that he wouldn't go to film college now. Uh, he'd probably just watch all the extras on the Blu-rays and then just go make something. And that goes back to Corman. That's what Corman was all about, getting people to be doing multiple... And that demarcation of just do be do multiple things. Like, or Lee Harcastle, the reason he got into claymation was, you know, because it was, you know, he wanted to push the boundaries of horror. You know, he was parodying pop culture, but also it was down to resources of what he could do. And then he's come up with amazing effects. So, you know, and, and everything, or Harry, who I do the, the animations with, and he hand draws everything in his bedroom and you know, sticks it on YouTube. So, but, but looking for different kinds of artists or even create your own name, you know, like Walter Merck did. Create your name, create whatever you think it is, and and just try it. And even if people say, no, that, that's, that's rubbish, it's not going to work, just try it, because you never know, they could be wrong. Who know, nobody can predict the future. If there is anything else that left unsaid that you'd like to add? No, uh, thanks for getting me along, and I hope, yeah, we're going to carry on collaborating. I think, yeah, we've got a rise in the pipeline, so I can't wait to get that out. And with your Sonics and Stuart uh, and Louis at Sci-Fi, uh, blow some more minds. James Edward Marks, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest James Edward Marks. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell, Gillian Duffy and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. Thank you for listening. <laughs>